You are listening to The Conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. All disease begins in the gut. It was Hippocrates, the father of modern medicine, who's credited with that concept. And building on that idea, University of Hawaii researcher Aliki Monakea applied and has been awarded a $2.5 million grant to better understand diabetes rates among Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders. Epigenetics is his field. He talked to us about the project, which is just about to get underway. It's been a challenge getting this through, but we're so excited about it and looking forward to starting the study. Well, you know, talk about the rates, you know, because we often hear that we just have just a, a crazy number of people with diabetes here, and it's particularly high among Hawaiians. Yes, we know that Native Hawaiians and Pacific Islanders experience a higher prevalence of diabetes, approximately two and a half times more than the general population in Hawaii, and it seems to be rising. Um, we're often in that population are diagnosed at a younger age even, on average about 10 years. And so as you know, it's a major health problem, especially now given SARS-CoV-2, where individuals with pre-existing conditions such as diabetes are more likely than those without to experience severe COVID-19 and even death, which is, again, why the vaccines are so important. So part of our mission is really to understand what drives these disparities so we can ultimately restore health equity. And, you know, I think when we last talked to you, you were doing some research related to, I think, COVID, and you were putting a call out for plasma. Right. So we had another study that led up to this new study where we were looking at some of the initial changes at the cell and molecular level of individuals that might be experiencing diabetes or prediabetes. And so when we looked at plasma samples from those individuals, we realized that there was a higher level of systemic inflammation in individuals, even with prediabetes, that concerned us. And that told us a little bit about potentially what might be happening at the cell and molecular level that led to that prediabetic condition that might be progressing onto diabetes. And so for this particular study, we're looking at cell and molecular changes that interact with each other that could be driving the progression of diabetes. And the hope is that we would be able to identify early indicators of not just diabetes risk, but pre-diabetes risk, so that we can start to um, change the dial on, um, in, in, uh, on health disparities and enable prevention. Your research has been on epigenetics, right? I mean, that's something that yeah. maybe folks may not understand or know what, what it means what that means. Yeah, I understand. Epigenetics means the study of heritable changes in the phenotype that's not due to changes in the underlying DNA sequence. And it's a composite of molecular mechanisms that affect how DNA is used in the cell. So it doesn't affect the DNA sequence itself. So it's not genetics. It literally means on top of genetics, epigenetics. And there are chemical modifications of the DNA, as well as the proteins that the DNA is wrapped around in the chromatin of the nucleus in the cell. And that chromatin structure determines how the DNA is used by the cell, and that can be dynamic over time during differentiation and development, and they can also change uh, because of environmental factors as well. And so epigenetics really underlies a lot of the cellular diversity in the phenotype and the function of cells. So what will this grant mean? I mean, it's $2.5 million. So part of what we call the Hawaii Social Epigenomics Early Diabetes or High-Seed Cohort, we'll be recruiting relatively young individuals, about 20 to 50-year-olds from Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander communities to participate, where we'll collect social environmental information, health data, blood samples, and soul samples from which we plan to examine epigenetic and gut microbiome differences between healthy, pre-diabetic, and diabetic participants 
We'll also be following up on this cohort three years after recruitment to examine any changes to what we call their immunoepigenetic gut microbiome access and how this relates to diabetes risk. So in addition to learning more about the social and biological processes that drive the progression of diabetes, we expect that the data from this study will allow us to identify new so-called epigenetic biomarkers of diabetes risk, which will greatly improve our ability to identify more accurately individuals from an at-risk population who might later develop diabetes. Now, this early detection, perhaps even before pre-diabetes manifest, would be a game changer and will enable more effective preventative strategies, and that's what we're hoping that this study will bring to Hawaii. Now, if I recall, you were working with, is it Ma'o Farms over there yes. on the west side, right? And you were doing something similar where you were g- getting information from the participants. Yes. So I was born and raised in Waianae on that side of the island, and Ma'o is Ohana, um, I have to say. And so I've learned from my family, Name Hawaii, and growing up, um, I learned that's inherent in the traditional Native Hawaiian concept of health, or Maoli Ola, is the understanding that environmental factors, including nutrition and social behaviors, transgenerationally impact health outcomes in individuals and communities. And that's exactly what um, we're now relearning, I think. Epigenetic mechanisms may now explain these molecular links between environmental factors and health outcomes, such as diabetes. And at Ma'o, they know that, and they know by doing. And so they've been working with youth for many years now, for over 20 years, reintroducing them back to Hawaiian concepts of health and wellness. That includes, again, return to Aina and Aina-based practices. And that's part of their youth leadership training program where they recruit 16 to 23-year-olds, where they've been working on the farm, learning about Native Hawaiian concepts of health and wellness and being able to become educated and succeed in their education goals and careers. At the same time, they're influenced by all of the changes that they experienced as being on the farm and immersed in this program. And so what we've learned by recruiting individuals to our other pilot study where we looked at gut microbiome changes as well as epigenetic changes in those individuals at at the cell and molecular level to produce some preliminary data for the work that led up to this new study, we found that in over a year, individuals that enrolled in a program that were pre-diabetes, that reduced their pre-diabetes risk over that one-year period by working and performing the farm duties as part of the program. And so we realized that had a lot to do with nutrition information and changes in their diet. For example, eating a high-fiber diet produced higher amounts of butyrate in their system that reduces systemic inflammation. And we've learned that that's ultimately what's driving the reduced diabetes risk in those individuals. So we've learned a lot from examining and exploring what's happening at the cell and molecular level with the youth interns that are returning to INA-based practices. And that was pretty incredible. So that's kind of the foundation for this grant, really. Do you yes. work with your ohana back there in the farm? Yeah, learning back, basically relearning, I think, from ancient Hawaiian concepts of health and wellness and practices that were instilled in us from when we were growing up. In my family, and my immediate ohana, we do see a lot of individuals have prediabetes and higher risk for diabetes, for sure, as Native Hawaiian born and raised in Waianae. We are surrounded by those risk factors. But with my kupuna's influence in Waianae, we've learned a lot of health practices, including nutrition, diet, and exercise sort of recommendations that she instilled in us as our kahuna laulapao, our family physician, really, that helped us to reduce our risk to diabetes. We think that a lot of the practices that she instilled then while we were growing up are really helping us long-term to reduce our risk for diabetes. Understanding that those concepts are not just vague concepts that environment relates to health, but there are physical manifestations involved at the cell and molecular level that's 
encouraging to us in terms of how we can relate this to Western practices and the Western model of health and wellness that we are not just a product of what we eat, but we're a product of our environment as well. Ah, the wisdom of our kupuna. <laughs> yes, exactly, probably. This will then, what, be a five-year study, and so when do you launch it? Oh, we're just starting. Um, so we're setting up our website. It's called www.hicseed.org, where we're actively recruiting individuals to participate in the study. And it will be a five-year study, so it's a, a long haul, we expect, and we're hoping that it's just the first of many. Okay, but you have to be Native Hawaiian? No, you don't. Any ethnic group is welcome to participate um, as part of this project. We are looking to leverage our community-based organizations and ask for participation from Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander-enriched populations. But because we're looking at social network settings as well, it's likely we'll have a number of different ethnic groups represented. And any particular ages? Yeah, we're hoping to focus on young populations, so 20 to 50-year-olds for the initial study. And we'll have more information about this at our website, again, www.highseed.org, where we'll have information on how do you learn more about the study, how do you sign up, and what's involved. Okay. All right. Well, I really appreciate your time. Maybe I can get my kids to, to join. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Thank yeah. you so much. Yeah. No, really no. It's just it. fascinating. You know, I mean, I've been reading a lot about your gut bacteria and mm-hmm. how that how it ties to your health, you know. So what can you do to cut that inflammation down and increase your chances right. of being healthier? Right. And that's what we're hoping that the study will provide more information on it's like what exactly about the gut microbiome is important to health. And we know that certain types of species of bacteria help us to be more resilient to not only developmental conditions and chronic disorders, such as diabetes, but also infectious disease. So if we can learn more about what makes a healthy gut and how we can strengthen our healthy gut microbiome, it would help us to be more resilient against a number of different conditions. That was Alika Monakea, epigenetics researcher at the University of Hawaii School of Medicine. He was just awarded a $2.5 million research grant from the National Institutes of Health. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your Backyard Quiz. For today's quiz, we've got a little radio history for you. If you tune in to Saturday mornings on HPR1, you've likely heard the latest cooking tips and trends from Francis Lamb on Splendid Table. This weekend broadcast staple started in 1997, almost 25 years ago, on Minnesota Public Radio with longtime host Lynn Rosetto Casper. Casper won many accolades during her tenure as the radio's top food journalist. She even has a tomato variety named after her. But today, we are looking for a much older radio chef. This fictional character was created in the 1920s by the Bureau of Home Economics of the USDA and served as the host 
of Housekeeper's Chat, which premiered in October of 1926. Over the course of the show, this host would offer everything from household tips to jokes to commentary on current events. But she is best remembered for insanely popular recipes, including something known as the Honolulu Salad. You know the name of this radio icon? Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center, nareethawaii.com. Lucilla Beach Reality Check features a story about rail and its runaway costs. Mar- reporter Marcel Henri is on the line. Hey, Catherine. Happy Monday. Happy Monday. So we're hearing more from, what, a former FTA official. What's all this about? Yeah, so for this story, I spoke uh, with Ron Fisher, who's uh, presently a consultant and previously was with the FTA for about 30 years before he retired in 2009. And when he retired, he was leading the uh, the offices, um, the FTA's office of uh, project planning, and he played an integral role in basically getting the uh, recommendation, the yeah, the recommendations and the formation of Honolulu's rail project. Now, I talked to to Ron because he retired in 2009, and we're now uh, what 12 years on from that point. And he just had some interesting insights to provide uh, regarding Honolulu's rail project in relation to other transit projects that have sprung up around the country, uh, basically saying that it really is an outlier in terms of these cost overruns, that he's never seen anything like Honolulu's cost overruns compared to the other transit projects in his career. Yeah, I mean, you know, we are where we're at with this project, you know, way over budget, what, $12 billion now? And, uh, you know, people are calling on us to pause this project and really look long and hard about where we're going. Yeah, and Ron kind of echoes that sentiment. Um, you know, he he's not saying we need to stop rail outright at Middle Street. You'll hear a lot of that sentiment, you know, locally. However, Ron is talking about the fact that we need to just pause and analyze really where we need to go with this project if it is, in fact, all the Moana Center, as opposed to just kind of, you know, blazing forth with that and really look at different endpoints for the project, for the, you know, the remainder of the line uh, heading into town and what it would mean if you stop at these various endpoints, you know, do you, uh, what, what impact does that have in terms of ridership, in terms of operations, in terms of obviously the, the capital cost, the environmental impacts, all of that stuff, and that it really needs to be done by credible 
people in the industry, right? Uh, in rail, this has been going on for so long, and you know, it's it's almost tribal, right? In terms of, are you pro rail? Are you anti rail? Are you this kind of a critic, or you know, such and such? But to really bring in some some experts uh, that can, you know, speak with the credibility of what it would mean to stop at different places, but that that all involves, you know, inherently uh, pausing and and taking a second look. Yeah, like take a deep breath. You know, because we have really the worst overruns with this project. Yeah, so this, you know, Ron's not just kind of talking. He's, he's show, showing and pointing to uh, really recent data that came out, uh, relatively speaking. It came out last year. But it analyzed 29 transit projects around the country and found that basically from the point when they inked their deals, you know, locally, these local entities uh, inked their deals with, with the federal uh, official, right, with the FTA, uh, they're, they've been coming in just about on budget, uh, which is kind of a feather in the cap for FTA to say, yeah, our, our predictions have gotten a lot better in recent decades. And we're pointing to these these uh, recent projects between the years 2007 and 2020. So that's really what Ron is pointing to, to say, hey, look, uh, a lot of places, you know, the, the forecast in terms of how much it's going to cost to build, and how the ridership's going to turn out, they're really accurate except for Honolulu, <laughs> which actually wasn't one of the 29 projects because it's not done. But if it was, it would certainly bring that average way up. And uh, so we still don't know when this report on those latest figures from last year is, is going to come out then. Yeah, so I reached out to the FTA, and they basically said that they're they're working on it. It's <laughs> the gist of it. Okay, and then uh, I know you'll, you'll be talking uh, rail with the uh, uh, one of your colleagues, uh, Nick Gruby, uh, at a at a roundtable you folks are uh, holding this this week. Yeah, so we have a reporters roundtable tomorrow. Um, it is virtual. It's a it's a Zoom chat, uh, and so you can go on Civil Beat on our website. It has all the details. It starts at two o'clock, I believe. It runs till three o'clock, and Nick and I will just be talking about some of the latest developments with the okay. project yep. and, and our reporting on it. Yep, lots to talk about with Rail, but thanks so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. That was Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Marcel Henri with today's reality check. Keep up with Rail coverage at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Kahala Market by Foodland. Throughout August, featuring tastes from around the world at It's All Rice, showcasing local and global rice finds from near and far. More at kahalamkt.com. Coming Saturday, August 14th, it's a live stream Atherton Studio performance with Naukulele Ekolu, highlighting the versatility and range of the ukulele. Everything from the traditional. Sweet and to the contemporary. It's a virtual concert, so you can join us from anywhere. Sign up at hprtickets.org. Sponsored by Kiyoki's Paradise and Dukes on Kauai. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Queen's Health Systems, committed to caring for the community at its hospitals and clinics. Learn more at queens.org.
takeaway restaurants are wary of the rising COVID count and what that might mean. Small businesses aren't keen on additional restrictions, as many are just hanging on as the costs rise and they're still struggling with short staffing. HBR's Casey Harlow joins us this morning. Hi. Morning, Catherine. So you've been spending some time in Waikiki. Yes, this is a part of our newsroom series uh, looking at the return of tourism and Waikiki initially started out with how hotels have been doing, then went into the staffing shortages and staffing concerns and issues with the unions. Now it's restaurants, which are seem to be suffering from a lot of different things. And this is indicative of a lot of restaurants across the state, but Waikiki also has its own set of challenges, such as high rent costs uh, for restaurants. And since the restaurants in Waikiki depend heavily on tourism for about seven months. Uh, it's been underneath a thousand. And so there's a lot of back rent that needs to be paid, a lot of agreements with landlords and so on and so, so forth on top of the uh, challenges that restaurants ultimately face. Yeah, I didn't think about the rents, but yeah, that's a big uh, nut to crack every month. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I spoke with Ryan Tanaka, who's a co-owner of Giovanni Pastrami. Yeah, again, he says nearly a year tourism has been below a thousand for daily uh, visitor arrivals, and that um, now that tourism is back, there's a lot of uh, surge, a lot of demand. And I've gone through Waikiki this past weekend. You'll see lines for restaurants, and you'll see uh, people wanting to go to different places, but you know because of capacity limits, because of safety protocols, uh, because possibly of short staff. Uh, restaurants have a hard time keeping up at this point. Um, Ryan Tanaka also said that, you know, uh, restaurants have uh, a lot of financial obligations, obviously, and uh, only a third of the restaurants received some support from the Small Business Administration, about less than a third. Uh, but ultimately, again, comes down to agreement with the landlords on how they can move forward. If they did receive financial assistance, if they were able to work out things with their landlord, that's great. If there are lingering issues, that becomes one major challenge. If you have the right landlord, it does make it a lot easier. When you have landlords, you understand that you know, in the end, we all want the same thing. We want everybody to come out of this pandemic whole. And if we're all looking at it from that perspective, then there are solutions. And there's also an interesting uh, fact that he pointed out, too. Uh, restaurants and hotels have um, a lot more of what he calls captive audiences. They, they have a consistent uh, base of people that can come in and out. Meanwhile, restaurants like his, which is on the Waikiki Beach Walk, and you may think of like other restaurants that are on Kalakaua or Kuhio Avenue uh, that solely rely on foot traffic, they have a very different um, take and some interesting challenges as well. If you are a restaurant on a resort property, then at least you have a captive audience. So there are restaurants, maybe some retailers who are doing well, even if there are low occupancy rates for these hotels. For example, I have a friend who, who has a restaurant at the Hilton Hawaiian Village. And even when they were at 20% occupancy, he was still doing comparable to pre-COVID. As these resort properties are increasing their occupancy during the summer, he's doing extremely well. So these various restaurants on resort properties have captive audiences. And so right now, it is actually a very challenging time to manage the foot traffic. And on top of everything, there's uh, as if you keep up with uh, restaurant news or keep up with what's going on here, there's other challenges as well. Uh, 
rising food costs is another because of inflation and uh, the restrictions as well. Also, the reservation system. Uh, I spoke with Nishan Chavda, uh, who's a senior operations manager with the MENA Group, uh, spoke about strip steak uh, Waikiki, located at the International Marketplace. They have a very interesting location because they're surrounded by hotels, right? So they'll always have a captive audience. Uh, For him, uh, yes, it's very much the reservations, people calling into multiple restaurants and then deciding last minute where they want to go, but not calling uh, back to either cancel or modify that. So they're basically like holding these tables uh, for people to show up. Meanwhile, they have people outside the restaurant waiting to get in, and they're trying to be as accommodating as possible as well. And also, Chavta is saying that he, again, is trying to be as accommodating as possible, wanting to be as positive about the whole situation. You have more places than others that are turning away people because they're either doing only strict reservations or they already full the capacity. We're trying our best to be as accommodating as possible. And knowing that if you know six restaurants are turning away guests and we have the ability to not, let's make it happen. Yeah, so again, restaurants in Waikiki, seeing a lot of the challenges that other restaurants outside of uh, the resort area is facing, but obviously Waikiki has its own challenges as well. Yeah, uh, you know, still see those long lines. I've been, been watching them, I guess, for most of the year, and it, it doesn't seem to, they don't seem to go away. Yeah, uh, just the other day, uh, I saw a huge line right in front of, like, the Royal Hawaiian Center and uh, asked a couple people, like, what are you in line for? And they're like, I think there's shave ice. There's a uh, yes, shave ice stand. That opened up. And, yes, I heard about that. <laughs> and I'm kind of wondering, wow, the, a line for a shave ice, that's that's new for me. Yeah, normally you see it on the North Shore, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Casey. Thanks for having me. That was HPR reporter Casey Harlow joining us this morning as we continue to check in on the ever-changing picture in Waikiki. The state is requiring all high school student-athletes to be vaccinated against COVID-19 to participate in sports this school year, and so is the University of Hawaii. The university says its intention is to create the healthiest and safest environment for all participants during practices, competitions, and team travel. And it may also require students who attend the games to be vaccinated. The Rainbow Warrior football team will play games on campus for the first time in school history with Aloha Stadium closed. Ching Field at the Clarence Teaching Athletics Complex will be the team's home for at least the next three years. The conversation's Matt Fairfax sat down with UH Associate Athletics Director Vince, uh, Vince Baltimore to discuss the switch to the temporary stadium and what game days will look like at the new venue this year. Construction is on track. It's exciting. We've got the skyboxes on their way over. The bleachers are all up, so we're looking for some additional refinements for the facility, but we're, we're moving forward. And ticketing is an essential part of college football and college football stadiums today. Where do we currently stand on assigning ticketing for Rainbow Warrior football this season? We're currently in process for that. Our ticket office in Kona office are handling reaching out to the season ticket fan base. And for those that have put in their donation for seating, the, the groups are reaching out and assigning seats. So, I mean, we're, we're moving forward. It's, you know, it takes some time to reach everybody and, and you know, have the conversation. And I think from, from what we're hearing, everyone's pretty excited to start football soon. 
And another aspect of the temporary stadium switch that is raising questions from fans and those who live close to the campus is the parking situation. Where would you say we're at uh, with parking allocations right now? So park, parking is definitely something that's important to us in athletics. Uh, we know that that's a, a primary part of the fan experience. We are having great conversations with multiple stakeholders, multiple groups in terms of how we allocate it and, and distribute it. Working with the University of Hawaii, the parking office, and, and also the Manoa, Mo'ili'ili, Puxali, you know, all, all the neighborhood boards just to make sure that they're aware and you know, on the same page in terms of what to expect when we have game day on campus. And have you guys been receiving lots of questions or lots of inquiries from neighbors close to the stadiums, people concerned primarily about parking? We get questions, but we also have a group that's being proactive and reaching out to the neighborhood boards and sharing where we are in progress. Just as a a point of reference, I mean, the Stan Sheriff Center hosts 10,300 and when we've had graduation, we've had more than 10,000 on campus. So we have experience with more than 10,000 people in lower campus. But I think the uniqueness of a football game required us to, to really take another look at how to make it even more efficient. So I've been encouraged, and David Matlin's been the, the key, our athletics director, in really building those conversations so that we take a look at how do we make it better than what we've already had. And I, I do think that you know, it's, it's, a positive, it's going in a positive direction. We know that a new turf field has already been installed there, brand new turf. What other new amenities will be visible at the stadium this year? Well, I, you know, to start off, everything, right? We've never played football on campus, so this will be new for every single part of it. It's, you know, for the fans that are sitting in, in the stands, it's going to be a new experience because they're used to the, you know, the, the location of Aloha Stadium. But with the field turf, I mean, we've got the press boxes, we've got suites that we're going to be putting in there for, for select groups. The student section is going to be in the end zone. You know, the band will be playing right off the field. So, I mean, you know, the, the fan atmosphere with the band and with the scoreboard. You know, I, I think every part of the game should be a, a new experience. You know, for us, you know, we're excited about this because we, we can really start with kind of a blank sheet of paper and and go off of what we've seen at other universities and and really make it special for Hawaii. You know, for tailgating, you know, that is a major part of football experience in Hawaii, but unfortunately we can't allow that on campus. And with the structure that we have, it's it's hard to, you know, to do a bunch of hibachis in a five-story structure. So, you know, we're going to have a bow zone, which is kind of an outdoor area that you can come early and, and get your bento and your beverage and sit and relax before the game and mix and mingle with other fans. You know, so we're, we're looking at it in that form so that as we continue to grow, this is year one, we'll refine it and make it better as we grow into the stadium. Athletics Director David Matlin, you mentioned him earlier, said it's a goal to create a true college football atmosphere at UH's new home this year. In your eyes, what does a true college football atmosphere look like in year one at Ching Field? First off, it's for our fans, right? The fan base has been a loyal and dedicated fan base for years. And, you know, just to really have a venue for them to come together and really support their team is going to be number one goal, right? Just to have have them be comfortable in the, in the stadium, 
to to be cheering on their team to to be able to see what's going on both on the field and and you know throughout with the scoreboard and and everything else that's happening you know most college most college game days and college football weekends you know are are about an entire not just about the three hours or, or so of football, right? It's it's everything beforehand. It's everything after that. It's everything leading up to a football game. So we're hoping to capitalize on every aspect of it and really showcase the university, to really showcase the football program, to showcase the department. And we know that it's already been a tough year for the UH football community with the loss, the losses of two football legends, UH football legends, Colt Brennan and Robert Kekaula. Is there any discussion of tributes at the stadium this year? Yes. Whenever something like that happens, it affects all of us. And, you know, we, we do have those conversations to find out what is the most appropriate way to handle it within our process, our system, our, our game, our university. So, we, you know, we've had those conversations. We are looking to do something for Colt. At this point, it's still in discussion, working with the, the the Brennan family. We want to be respectful and and really make sure it's it's something that they're comfortable with. You know, for Robert, he's he's a mainstay. He's done so much in the community and you know been a big part of Hawaii athletics. You know, we're we're looking to find out what's an appropriate way to to do that. I think just like you said, being respectful is always very important. What has been the most difficult part of making a relatively speedy transition from Aloha Stadium to Ching Field. For for us, this this was a surprise, right? To be able to transition from Aloha Stadium to Ching Field was not something that we really planned or expected, but it happened. So we just had to deal with it. And I will tell you that the best part of that incident happening, or, or the incident that created that, was that the university really pulled together. I think David Matlin did an amazing job, along with the president of the university, David Lasner, and others to really come together and to say, okay, well, this happened, and how are we going to respond to it? You know, should it have been done faster, or could it have been done faster? I, I don't really know the answer to that, but I do know that since we first heard that we had to find a, a home for Hawaii football, it's been encouraging that everybody's been on the same team and like, okay, how do we how do we get this done, right? What, what else do we need to do? September 4th is kind of our, our end date. That's the goal. We have to play football on September 4th. So we're all working forward to that. And, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think this was a good exercise to really see and, and really showcase that, you know, we can get things done when we have to. Anything else to comment on? Anything else we should be looking forward to about UH football this season? We're the state's team. We, we recognize that. We know it's a responsibility. And, you know, we want to make sure that we, we host these events and our teams are ready to, to really showcase our university and our state. So, you know, the theme, as we had mentioned, is coming home. You know, so that will be the predominant theme for the year. We had some sports last year that weren't able to compete. For example, women's volleyball, you know, our cross country, uh, our soccer program. So, you know, coming home really is, is for them as well, right? And and for the fans that we couldn't have in the stands and in the arenas, I mean, it's coming home to that as well. So we're we're excited about really launching coming home, coming home to campus, coming home to Manoa, coming home to our events. All right, Vince, thank you so much. Thank you, Matt. Enjoyed it. That was UH Associate Athletics Director Vince Balmore talking with our Matt Fairfax. The Rainbow Warriors football 
team uh, was able to practice for the first time last week, and their first home game of the season is Saturday, September 4th against Portland State. is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Scientists in Chile have discovered a new family of planets beyond our solar system. Astronomer Christopher Phillips shares the exoplanet details in your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer, our weekly look into the massive universe around our tiny planet and also things we can try and spot in our dark skies. As usual, we are grateful to have the support of astronomer Christopher Phillips to help us in that endeavor. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have for us this week? Hey, Dave. It's good to be here. So this week, stargazers look out for Jupiter and Saturn in the eastern sky after sunset. The moon this week will appear as a waxing crescent, which of course means conditions will be perfect for stargazing. And this week, I understand it's a trip to Chile and new discoveries from a facility down there. It is indeed. Astronomers using the Very Large Telescope, or VLT, in Chile have discovered a family of planets around a distant star called L85-59. This exoplanet family in many ways resembles our own solar family of planets. Amongst the findings, though, was a surprise, a small exoplanet with a mass less than that of our own Venus. And with exoplanet discoveries being common these days, Chris, what makes this one so special? Well, the fact that such a small planet was detected in itself is a notable achievement. Planet hunters have strived for decades to detect small planets in other star systems, but the challenge has been finding them in a signal dominated by the host star. And I'm guessing large gas giant planets are easier to detect. Absolutely. Large planets can cause a noticeable dip in the brightness of the host star when they pass in front of it. This is called a transit, and this makes up the bulk of planetary detection. And so by the same token, detecting a dip caused by a small planet must be a lot harder to find. Absolutely, and that's what makes this discovery impressive. These planets, the small ones, are the ones we're most interested in, since we believe that these worlds are probably the best candidates for habitable places and perhaps even life. And what do you think the chances are this new world could sustain life? Well, right now, that's unknown. But now we know it's there, a deeper investigation can take place. One promising start, though, is the fact that this world is almost certainly rocky. Well, we'll be looking for more information about it on a future stargazer from you. Christopher Phillips, appreciate it. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at haleakalaranch.com. Today we're digging deep in the annals of radio history for the name of the fictional host of the early 20th century radio program, Housekeeper's Chat. This incredibly popular radio show started in 1926. By the end of 1927, 43 radio stations carried it, and with a few years, uh, within a few years, hundreds more broadcast the daily 15-minute show focused on cooking and household tips. 
Although the show's host was uh, only known by one name, this character was voiced by several women at local stations who used a standardized script. While the show included everything from jokes to social commentary, its main focus was recipes. A spin-off cookbook with some of the most popular ones stayed in print all the way until 1978. It was titled Aunt Sammy's Radio Recipes. Yes, Aunt Sammy, the fictional wife of Uncle Sam, was the host of Housekeeper's Chat. And that was the answer to today's quiz, but we stumped you on that one. If you do find a, one of those cookbooks, you can try to make the Honolulu salad. It calls for pineapple, cream cheese, green pepper, and pimento. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. We're halfway through 2021, and as we plan the rest of the year, we want to know what you think. When and how do you listen to HPR? What kinds of programs do you want more of? We recently sent invitations to our annual audience survey. Check your email inbox for the link or head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org survey. It's quick, it's easy, and it really helps us give you more of the radio you love. And thanks. Hawaii's Carissa Moore returned home victorious last week after winning gold in surfing's Olympic debut. But Moore isn't the only local female athlete that's in it on top. Over the 4th of July weekend, Waimanalo's Lake Iolani Stevens-Ram won a champion belt buckle in women's bronc riding at the Black Hills Roundup Rodeo in South Dakota. It was the first time the Roundup had held a bronc riding event for women in 80 years. Here's Steven Ram's winning ride. Stevens Ram went on to secure another championship title in women's bronc riding at the Cheyenne Frontier Days, the largest outdoor rodeo in the world. The conversation Savannah Harriman Pote spoke with Stevens Ram about what it's like to be on the back of a bucking horse. So the women's ranch bronc riding is basically we are just taking um, a saddle that we would use the day to day on the ranch, and like when we ride colts on the ranch or just our ranch horses and we put them on a bucking horse and we get either a rope or a night latch which is kind of like dog collar that you can hang on to all the horse bucks and then you've got your bronc rein just like saddle bronc riders and then they let you out and it's the same rules as other bronc riding you ride as best you can for about eight seconds and then they score you based off of how hard the horse is bucking and how you ride so whether you move your feet you lift and you're in rhythm with the horse is what the scores are, and then the harder your horse bucks is the more points you get. And what was it like being on that horse? It was a little scary. That one kind of pushed me out onto the side really early, and I felt my stirrup, which is what I put my foot in when you ride. Um, the stirrup on my right side fell off, 
So the nerves got a little higher once I felt I didn't have a good footing on the right side. So I had to really hang on and make sure that I didn't lean too much on the right and I relied more on my left side. Mm. When you're on a bucking horse, do you feel like time is moving very quickly or very slowly? It feels really slow. The longest eight seconds of my life every time I nod my head to get out of the chute. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I can only imagine. And, and I know that this is your second victory in the short course of one month. You competed in the 102nd Black Hills Roundup in South Dakota just over the 4th yes, of July yes. weekend, where you were also the champion rider in women's bronc riding. Congratulations on that yes. as well. Thank you. And, and I also understand that that was the first time that the Black Hills Roundup in, reintroduced women's bronc riding in over 80 years. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes, correct. There aren't a lot of girls who do it these days, um, and it's not a really big growing event in the sport because it's not as popular as like a lot of the other events, say like barrel racing and breakaway roping or even goat tying team roping too like a lot, that's the main events mostly that women enter for the rodeos and not a lot of them are very willing to get on a bronc but for those of us who are we are kind of in a big group now that's the women's ranch bronc riding champion and it's also the texas women's ranch bronc riding association so we are trying to get out there more so that more girls know that there is a group of girls who do it and they're more than welcome to join and it's a safe place where we get on very safe horses and we're also taught how to get better but it's very new still. Kind of we're like the guinea pigs of the group. It's just been a few years. Wow. And you live now in Wyoming full-time, is that correct? Yes. But you're originally from the Big Island. <laughs> yes, yep. Born you... and raised in Mountain View. When I was looking up the history of this event that you competed in, I, of course, ran across Ikua Purdy, who competed in the Cheyenne Frontiers Day event in 1908 and won. Yes, he's there's in the Frontier Days Museum, um, there's actually a picture of him and like a little story about him. In the Lane Frost Museum, um, by the big iron statues, there's his picture. And then he's also got a little backstory about like who he is and where he comes from and what he did and the year he won and whatnot. And it's pretty much like right on the corner of where the women's ranch bronc riding saddle is. And then the story about what we do. So it's really cool. I got to go see it yesterday and take pictures and then take pictures with fans next to his picture. So it was a really cool deal for me. Oh, that's so nice. When, when you saw that bit of history, did you feel homesick or did you feel like you really, this was just another way in which you belonged there? A little bit of both. Um, it's really hard to be away from home, especially when there's no immediate family up here. But, you know, with the Aloha spirit, it's really easy to make friends. And the rodeo family takes really good care of you. But it's also like, wow, it's not just me, you know, being out here and doing that stuff coming from Hawaii. So it's also very comforting. Aikua Purdy competed and won in steer roping. And I saw that he roped his steer in 56 seconds flat, which at the time was a record. As someone who's not familiar with that event, can you talk about, if you know, what that means, what kind of accomplishment that might be? Yeah, so at Cheyenne, the arena specifically, there is a like a buffer time where you have to let the calf out. So they've got like a 20-foot head start, the calf does. 
and then the roper can come out and catch it. So a lot of the times aren't very quick at the Cheyenne for two days like grounds because of that 20-foot advantage that the calves have. And then the horses have to really come hauling out of there. And then the ropers can't waste any time. They've got to catch as quick as they can because it's, it's a timed event. So they've got to bust their butts and their horses have to bust their butts to catch up because the calf does get out. But because it's such a big arena, it's I'm sure it's really a lot. I, I don't calf rope, <laughs> but to watch it is very cool and to see how fast those guys hustle. So it is a lot of work just to get a qualifying time. I can't imagine the arena record. You know, I was thinking about this event, and I went to school in Waimea. I grew up on the west side of Bay Island, so I'm more familiar with Hawaii's Paniolo history. But it's not mm-hmm. something that has a lot of recognition outside of the islands. And Hawaii is in the news a lot right now because of surfing. Carissa Moore just took gold in surfing's debut at the Olympics. The Olympics. Yeah, which yeah, is... I- that yesterday really exciting for us but when you think of surfing and you think of Hawaii I think intuitively you're like oh that made sense but yeah we have a similarly long history with ranching with rodeo that I think doesn't get the same kind of recognition do you feel like you're an ambassador for that particular history or kind of explaining to people how the place you grew up influenced what you do often when you're at these events yeah, it is really exciting to say that I'm from Hawaii, and I do feel like I'm an ambassador in some way because a lot of people are like, oh, we didn't even know Hawaii had horses, let alone rodeo. And to talk about how, like, I grew up roping and running barrels at Kualoa because I, I went to Amanalo when I was really young, so I barely got to rodeo on the big island. But I was like, yeah, our district is just all the island kids, and we compete against each other, and, like, it's really fun to educate them on it because they they genuinely don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Have you encountered anyone else or do you want to highlight anyone else who is competing in these events who is from Hawaii right now? Yeah, I know Kule DaCosta. She's a good friend I went to high school with. She was down in Texas last time I talked to her and she was roping and running barrels down there and she's making quite the big break in representing Hawaii and also Paris Darn. She and I grew up team sorting together and she is really high up there in the national rain cow horse. So it's not quite rodeo, but it's a different discipline, and it's raining and then, like, cow work and herd work. So we used to chase cows around the arena in Newtown and Country and Waimanalo together, and now that we're, like, older and have graduated college, we're moving on in our own. Like, I'm riding Bronx, and she's doing rain cow horse. So she's pretty up there, too, for her division, and it's really cool to see how far we've grown from, like, the little 13-year-old. It's interesting. You watch these types of events, events, particularly something like bronc riding. And when you watch someone fall, even if you are just watching it on a screen, you can still feel the impact in your body as a viewer. What about this event is worth it to you? The thrill of being on the back of a horse who loves to buck as much as I love to ride, really, um, and just in the world of rodeo, there's something very admiring about Bronx alone. And then to be a part of that and get to ride them and get to help them do what they love to do. And looking at it from an outside perspective, it's probably like, oh, no, like I'm fighting the horse. But really, it's I'm working with the horse. It's it's just as exciting, I think, for both of us. So it's not like we're competing. It's more like we're a team. And it's like, let's see what kind of show we can put on for the people watching. 
while we work together to make it through the eight seconds and let's both give it our all. That was HPR Savannah Harriman Pote speaking with Lake Eolani Stevens Ram, the Cheyenne Frontier Days Women's Bronc Riding Champion. And that wraps it up for today. Tomorrow, we plan to revisit the staffing issue in our hospitals. Miss something and want to listen back to something you heard? All of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.